Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. This past Tuesday, I met with two other Christian leaders via Zoom for the lead program. I'm their mentor through a two and a half year journey which prepares them for licensing and ordination with the Christian Missionary Alliance. Toward the end of our time together, one of them asked, Kevin, what is our relationship supposed to be with other churches? We have virtually no relationship with any other Christians outside of our own church, he said. And so I responded by explaining that all Christians and all local churches, if they are truly redeemed of Christ, are our brothers and sisters. We are all together one body, and there needs to be both unity and collaboration as we seek to fulfill the church's mission together. Yet even as I said it, the reality was clear. The vast majority of churches in the United States don't do this well, if at all. That was Tuesday. On Wednesday of this past week, I had lunch with a fellow Alliance pastor out in Royal Palm. And while we spoke about a lot of things over the course of our meal, our conversation landed hard on several theological and ideological divisions that exist within our movement, within the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Now, we're certainly not the only denomination wrestling through these issues and seeing both pastors and churches taking opposing sides in these debates. However, we are facing this reality, and it affects us, and so we discussed it together. On the one hand, there are the decisions that our denomination is actively discussing and actively voting on. Does the Bible allow for women to be ordained as pastors? Should we eliminate a significant element of our end times position to open the door wider for people to join our movement? And so as you can imagine, there are people on both sides, and even on both sides, there are various nuanced positions that people hold. And so those issues are on the one hand, but on the other hand, are those issues that are not being actively discussed at that level and are not open for voting within our denomination, but which still cause division in our movement because there are people holding positions on opposite sides, again, of these issues. Issues like critical race theory and elements of wokeness. Even though we're not pursuing such ideologies as a denomination, there are voices aggressively promoting such things within the Alliance, and there are voices fighting against such things in the Alliance. And the tensions, as you can imagine, are felt on all sides. And so that was Wednesday. On Thursday, I participated in a regional network of Alliance pastors that meets monthly in Lake Worth. And so this is a group of pastors that support one another, that pray for one another, that encourage one another, counsel one another, and fellowship together. And so I'm appreciative of that group. And you know what happens at those groups? Pastors open up about their struggles and things going on, and so this was no exception. In fact, during the meeting, one pastor brought up the pain that he experienced from being mistreated by a fellow member of the body of Christ. And then what ended up happening was this snowball throughout the conversation. His testimony of what he is going through caused another pastor to admit that he still contends with the wounds of a similar hurt from a time in the past. Then another pastor opened up about his current strife within his church, 
as brothers and sisters in Christ attack each other and their pastor, and usually over nonsense. That was Thursday. So why did I just recount my week to you? Because this is, this is, these are examples of a glaring reality that we too often suppress. There's something that we all know, but we don't like to admit. And it's this, that the American church largely stands in disunity. And this disunity drastically impacts ministry within the church and mission outside of the church. Here's just a, here's just a few examples of what I mean by that. Countless people who once belonged to a local church have left forever because of hurt that they experienced from other Christians. In fact, if I had asked for hands to be raised, I'm sure numerous people would raise hands having known somebody in that type of situation. Communities that have a sufficient number of local churches to deeply impact the area with the gospel still experience a paucity of gospel witness because churches don't work together to accomplish the mission. The caricatures, the gross misrepresentations of Christianity, which society holds, continues to grow as the church deals poorly with their conflicts before the world. And finally, the church is in decline. Every church I'm aware of has people who never returned after their reopening. A disturbing number of pastors are leaving the ministry. You might say that those facts don't have anything to do with unity. However, I disagree. So why do I disagree? Because if the church was truly our family, if we truly saw ourselves as parts of a body in desperate need of each other, would it be so easy to break fellowship? Would it be so easy to choose to do other things? I say it again, the American church largely stands in disunity. Now that I've given you the bad news, let me give you some good news as well. Here's the first one. Our failures and the failures of the American church at large do not negate the truth of the gospel. Our failures and the failures of the American church at large do not negate the truth of the gospel. I had a conversation a few months back with a young woman who had walked away from the church and had walked away from Christ. She just couldn't bring herself to believe that Christianity was true because of the terrible way she witnessed Christians treating one another. Now, I empathized with her. I told her honestly that I shared her pain over the terrible ways that some Christians treat each other. And yet I also told her the truth, that a good person doesn't make a false statement true, and a bad person doesn't make a true statement false. In other words, Christians behaving badly doesn't make Christianity false. If nothing else, it demonstrates our deep need for Jesus, for his sanctification, for him to finish the work that he began. Christianity is true on its own merits. And as we saw last week, there's an abundance of evidence for that. So that's the first piece of good news. Our failures don't negate the truth of the gospel. But here's the next piece of good news. God is not finished with us yet. Here's what I mean by that. By God's grace, we can search the scriptures. We can be honest about what we have seen. We can be honest about our personal failings. 
And we can lay our failures before Christ. And we have promises of God that he won't leave us, that he won't abandon us, that he won't give up on us. But instead, the opposite is true. He will help us to overcome our failings. We see this in passages such as 1 John 1, 9, which says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so together, we can confess our failings. And he's faithful to forgive. And he can purify us so that we do better. So that we are better. Christ is the head of the church. And if we allow him, he will lead. Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And he will prepare his bride so that she stands faultless on her wedding day. So where do we start How about we start with a picture, a picture of what the unity of the church should look like. And so as we pick up in our study of Acts, uh, I want to remind us where we're at here. Our passage picks up from where we left off last week. Peter had proclaimed the gospel message to the crowds that had gathered in Jerusalem for the festival, and more than 3,000 people committed their lives to the Lord that day. And so now Luke describes that early group. What does it look like? The body of Christ, the church. And so we're going to begin in Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. That is among my favorite passages in all the scripture, and yet it is one that we all know we need to attain to, that this is the image, that this is the model, this is the picture, and yet none of us have experienced this in any church we've ever been a part of. As we think through this passage, we're going to examine the various things that the early church did. However, as we do so, I don't want to miss another important facet. How, the, how did they approach those things that they did? And I believe that our answer lies in the first three words of our text today. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. In other words, they persisted obstinately in these things. They persevered in these things. There is intentionality and commitment in what they had set themselves to. Not just to the things that they did, but to the community that did them together, to the church. And so when we think through the various instances of disunity in the church, it's not hard to imagine that it stems from a lack of devotedness to the community, a lack of devotedness to the church. We all are, in various ways, products of our culture. And a culture that promotes self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, self-gratification, self-assertion, 
creates people who import these traits into the community of the church. And this is part of our problem. What if we were so devoted to the community, to the church, that it never crossed our mind not to show up on a Sunday? Even when we have Dolphins tickets. Even when we didn't get as much sleep as we wanted. Even when there's a guest speaker scheduled. Even if someone there offended us. What if we were so devoted to the community, to the church, that it never crossed our mind not to show up on a Sunday? What if we were so devoted to the community, to the church, that to only spend one hour together once a week just seemed ridiculous? What if we were so devoted to the community, to the church, that every pain our brothers experienced became our pain, that every joy became our joy, that every need became something that we desired to meet. They devoted themselves to the community and to the various functions of the community of God's people. And so let's take a look at what some of these functions were. Our verse 42 of our passage today says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so here, Luke has provided a summary statement of what the church did as it gathered together. And these same elements are mentioned or alluded to throughout the New Testament epistles. We have Roman reports from decades later that describe the Christians doing these same things. The early church fathers make mention of these things in their writings. In fact, these elements have been the core elements of Christian gatherings for the past 2,000 years. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, is the first one mentioned. You know, in the earliest times, many of the Christians had the apostles literally present with them. However, as the church continued to grow and continued to expand throughout the Roman Empire, the teachings of the apostles were largely transmitted orally or through writing. And in our day, we have the preserved teachings of the apostles, along with the entirety of the Old Testament in our Bibles. And so we have the accounts in the Gospels, which were written either by the apostles or which incorporated the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. We have the epistles of several of the apostles preserving their teaching as they wrote to particular churches and particular Christians in their day. So what does it mean to devote oneself to the apostles' teaching? What does it mean for the community, the church, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? It means that we commit ourselves to being formed by the teachings of Scripture. It means that in the same way that the apostles were disciples of Jesus, learning what he taught, learning to live as he lived, so the church is called to learn the teachings of Jesus from the writings of the apostles, from the Scriptures. And the church is called to live as they lived, even as they sought to live as Jesus lived. And so our participation in the community, in the church, can't be noncommittal. It can't be haphazard. It can't be according to if we want to participate, when we want to participate. If we're going to be formed by the teaching of Scripture in the community for which it was preserved, we need to be devoted together to the apostles' teaching. The text says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. 
at friends' fellowship, this is far more than being friendly when they saw each other. It's far more than smiling and saying hello on a Sunday morning. This word has the sense of communion, of partnership, of close association, of sharing life together. In fact, this word represents what is described in metaphors throughout the New Testament. That together, this group was a family, a body, a house, a temple, built up together. In fact, ridiculous to think of apart. So what does it look like to live life together like this? How might conflicts and disagreements change if there was true fellowship among Christians? How much would people want what we have if we experience this type of fellowship in our community? It goes on, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, the breaking of bread is very likely a reference to the Lord's Supper. And for the earliest Christians, all of which were Jews, the prayers were likely the traditional Jewish prayers, and yet with the shared understanding of their meaning in light of Christ's coming. And as the church became predominantly Gentile, as it is today, the prayers might have changed, but the centrality of corporate prayer did not change. The church prays in community. The church is called to be devoted to prayer and devoted to the celebration of the Lord's Supper together. And yet, if we're being honest, for many Christians, corporate prayer is uncomfortable. We don't want to pray aloud before our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, even when the pastor is the one praying, the thought may cross our minds, I wish he wouldn't pray so long. And if we're being honest, we may not give any thought to whether or not the Lord's Supper is being celebrated until we show up and see the plates sitting on the table at the front of the sanctuary. For many, it may have just become that thing that we do, and its significance is largely lost on us. Friends, these are the key elements of the gathering of the Christian community since its inception. And so we must be devoted to these things together. If these basic elements of devotion and common Christian practice were convicting, consider this next facet of the early church, starting in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Whoo, that one might be a hard pill to swallow. You know, about 20 years ago, I was a student at Nyack College up in New York, and for those of you who went to college or have children who went to college, you know and understand a timeless truth. College is expensive. My parents didn't have any money saved up for me to go to college. I didn't have any grand scholarships. In fact, I worked my way through my time at college, as many people do. However, I couldn't work enough hours to cover my expenses. And I was on the verge of dropping out of college. I remember the day I called my father to tell him the news, and he, he listened, and he listened, and then we hung up, and 20 minutes after that phone call, my phone rang. It was my uncle, my father's brother, and he was angry. He told me, Kevin, we're family. If you needed money, you should have called me, and I would have gladly helped. Now, how much do you need for school? I was dumbfounded. 
After all, I always operated under the do-it-yourself, don't ask for help, this is your problem, not theirs mentality. But as my uncle made clear, this is what family does for each other. They help. They support. They lean in during times of difficulty, not just when things are good. You know, I've met a lot of Christians who look at this passage and they cringe. Is this promoting some kind of Christian communism? No. This passage is, this passage is showing the love of family. It doesn't say that they sold all their possessions and made sure that everything was split evenly. However, it does say that they didn't see their things as their things, but that they saw their things as blessings of God for the whole family. It does say that they were willing to sell their own possessions to make sure that brothers and sisters in Christ who were in need received the help that they needed. That was what was most important. This wasn't stick a five in the benevolence offering. This was, tell me, how much is needed? Okay, let me make a way to help you. They were devoted to the community, to the family of God, to the church. What does the church look like? What should it look like? Catch this description, verses 46 through 47. It said, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. Friends, when does the church meet? In our day and in our country, it seems that the majority of churches meet for between one and two hours, one day a week, Sundays. And again, the majority of those who belong to a particular church attend one to three times per month. And again, if we're being honest, it's more like one to two times a month. But what do we see of the early church in our text? They met daily. They met as a large crowd on the temple grounds every single day of the week. And they also gathered in smaller groups in each other's homes and had meals together regularly. They were so devoted to the community, to each other, to the church. Now listen carefully to this description. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This was not a group that had to be together. This was a group that wanted to be together. They were devoted one to another. And this was a community that was committed not just to fellowship, but to the mission that was entrusted to it. We see at the very end of our passage today, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. They were committed not just to fellowship, but to the mission that was entrusted to the church. Now, I believe they were devoted to the mission but I also believe that they were probably more equipped for the mission than we are today. Now, why do I say that? I mean, after all, we have the same Holy Spirit that they had. We have the same gospel that they had. We have the same testimony of being saved by grace through faith as they had. However, I would argue that they had a community that was so devoted to each other and so devoted to being on mission together 
that the gospel was infectious in a way that we just don't see today. But friends, we need to get back to that. You know, I said it earlier and I'll say it again. God is not done with the church. God is not done with the church in America. He's not done with us at Belglade Alliance Church. We are at a place in history that has veered far off course in terms of how the church is called to relate one to another in community. We may do better than some other churches, but we pale greatly in comparison to the early church and even God's will for us. Yet we don't have to resign ourselves to this state. Friends, we need to understand what it is that we are called to as a church. We need to set our will on the will of God. We must desire to be devoted to the community, the church. We must desire to be devoted to the functions of the church together. And we must desire to be devoted to the mission of the church together. And so we must call out to God in confession for where we have fallen short. And we must call on him to work in our hearts, in our minds, in our characters, both individually and corporately, and form us into the church that he desires us to be. You know, we live in a day when the church is largely fractured. It demonstrates its disunity. Most recently, the concerns of this world have weighed heavily on everyone. And instead of pulling together, each has turned to themselves and their own priorities. The various crossroads that face us as a society and as a country have caused so many Christians to identify first and foremost as citizens of a nation or members of a political party or as adherents of a particular ideology. I'm not here to debate the merits of any of these things. However, it is largely obvious that the church's commitment to community, to the church, with its functions and its mission, have largely taken a backseat to those things. Tensions have risen to record highs within the church as debates ensue over important issues. And yet the unity that must exist despite these conversations has been largely absent. Friends, it would speak volumes to one another and to the world if we were committed first and foremost under God to his church. If our unity in Christ was of first importance, even as we engage in dialogue and debate, even as we suffer together the trials of our times, what a testimony that would be to the watching world. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if God added to our numbers daily those who were being saved.